an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien, Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, I'll listen back to theme songs, earworms, and clunkers from the Seattle World's Fair. Let's go to And then, from the archives, Seattle's ill-fated 1919 run for the Stanley Cup. It was a fast game. It was an athletic game. It was, uh, you know, two teams going toe-to-toe. And stay tuned for a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening in the Pacific Northwest with the Never Green Minute. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us on Friday mornings for All Over the Map, where Felix looks at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, attention teachers and kids, the Secretary of State's office is running a place name contest just for you. Boy, isn't that exciting? A place? Am I the only one who's excited about this coming running here this morning saying, hey, everybody? Two of us. <laughs> All right. This comes from a part of the Secretary of State's office called Legacy Washington. They published that Dan Evans book recently we talked about. Contest is called What's in a Place Name. It's for K through twelve students in school or homeschool or anywhere in the great evergreen state. It's brand new this year, and the hope is for it to become an annual deal. What they want to do is inspire students to look at their neighborhoods and the proper names that are on streets or schools or libraries or whatever, and then say, you know, who is this person? Why did that person have a thing named after them in the neighborhood? And does that reflect the values of our community? So there's an element of analysis in this contest. They aren't just looking for a book report about some forgotten person. They want to inspire a deeper level of thought which might even lead to an effort to change a name. And I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, Contest organizer is a senior researcher at Legacy Washington named Aaron Poplowski. He says that what something is called can reveal a lot. Sometimes it's named after people that had very little to do with Northwest history or named after uh, after folks that may may have had an intolerant past. And and we have to examine whether or not those strive to, um, to meet the values of our community. Yeah, and Aaron mentioned Mount Rainier as an example of the first case where the namesake never set foot anywhere near here. Of course, the Puyallup tribe's in the early stages of an effort to restore an indigenous name to the mountain. And the second case, he cited his own alma mater, Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, which last year, because of Woodrow Wilson's sort of uh, history of intolerance, changed the name to um, honor community activist and city council member Dolores Silas, who was the first black woman on the Tacoma City Council. Now, another cool part of this project is the format that the entries may take. It could be a written report. It could be a video or a podcast. It could be a walking tour map or a script for a play. They're open to, to just about anything that um, shares the research and the findings. They're also open to entire classrooms taking on a place name project as a single class project. Now, the deadline's coming up pretty fast. This is a, a lot of work. The deadline's on Sunday, May 15th. There's still enough time to put something together. They have all kinds of resources online, and we have links to that at My Northwest. They did a sort of a fascinating sample entry about Israel Road in Olympia, and uh, because you'd think it, I mean, that could be a, a surname, could be the name of a country, and the, uh, we have a link to that report as well. It's very interesting what that road's actually, who that road's actually named after. Now, a panel of judges will select five winners who will get $100 grants for their classrooms. Uh, winning entries will also be featured in a virtual exhibit and in publications from the Washington Secretary of State. But here's the real prize. We'll talk about the winner right here on in a future edition of All Over Seriously. the Map. That's the thing. It's it's yeah. We'll feature. It they could sure. get themselves on your on your show here. I think they might meet the high standards of All Over the Map to be featured in you know a thirty second report on a Friday morning. 
Well, that is pretty exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. Thank you, Felix. Have a good weekend. Whether we travel by water, land, or air, we are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. Take me to the fair. Take me to the fair. Don't go anywhere. I would rather be. I recognize that voice. (laughs) The Seattle World's Fair officially began 60 years ago tomorrow. And just now emerging from the music vault is our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, who is bearing all sorts of novelty tunes. (laughs) (laughs) Memorable novelty (laughs) tunes that were written for the event. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Yeah, I mean, so you can't overstate the impact of the 1962 Seattle World's Fair for how it transformed the city and the region in positive ways. We all know that. You know, from the civic can-do spirit it fueled to tackle big challenges, to creation of Seattle Center as home to arts, culture, and sports, to putting Seattle on the map as a going concern right there at the dawn of the space age. But other than that, it was also one heck of an extended party, and parties need music. So that song we heard at the top, that's from the Elvis movie that was filmed at the fair called It Happened at the World's Fair, which didn't come out until 1963. So if you watched the movie and thought you could go to the fair, you couldn't. The fair was already over. And the local song explosion began back in 1961. So I have a bunch of songs we're going to listen to today. The first one that we're going to hear is called Meet Me in Seattle. It's probably the best known of the fair songs. It was front-page news in November 1961 when it was chosen as the official song. The composer, kind of a dark horse, was a 47-year-old tool worker at Boeing named Edward Chambreau. I don't know of his earlier or later works, but we certainly know this one. It was recorded by a lounge act called uh, Joy and the Boys, who were known for playing a lot at uh, good old Rosalini's 410. So here it is, Meet Me in Seattle. Everyone recognizes this, I'm sure. Sing along if you feel like If you want to meet me, I'll be there. I will be your guide. You will be my dog. We will have a ball. Remember, if you want to hug me, hug me there. If you want to kiss me, kiss me there. I'll be waiting to stop that celebration. In Seattle, that's where I'll be, I'll meet you. In Seattle, at the fair. And it goes on and on, right? Cute. I don't doubt it. Yeah. Little risque. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds like riding a one-horse open sleigh. <laughs> yeah, we sing that every Christmas. My family yes. go out and in the, sure cut down do. a tree and sing that song. Um, now, this I don't know much about this next one. We kind of used it as a palate cleanser to tamp down any excitement that might have been caused by Joy and the Boys or Elvis. This is called Let's Go to Seattle by the Dreamlighters. Um, it's not to be confused with the Boeing Dreamliner. No. Let's go to Pick up the pace. Yeah, it's a little ponderous. I remember when I was when I was digitizing this at the museum. I thought, wait, is this a, is this a, a forty five? Should this be on forty? But it was yeah. on thirty three. Anyway. All right, so let's let's good say goodbye to those people we'll there. That out. Now, um, probably the second best known of the World's Fair songs is by another lounge act who call themselves the Lancers. This is called "See You in Seattle." <laughs> Right to a star. Back up your troubles wherever you are. 
It's Superman. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that kind of feel. See you in Seattle. See you at the fair. Take away a head look at tomorrow. Just as if you were there. Take a rocket trip to Mars. Have your dinner way up in the clouds. Stroll up all of ours on the world. That's catchy as well. That's yes. again. That's probably the two kind of best-known fair songs. Now, one thing: Seattle wasn't all sweetness and light 60 years ago, and there wasn't wholesale buy-in to the notion of these songs. And as early as January '62, there was a column sponsored by the nightclub industry, and a guy named Paul B. Lowney wrote, "See you in Seattle by the Lancers, and meet me in Seattle when join the boys." Are catchy and bouncy, but the melodies are too synthetic and lack that certain big hit quality, which yes. makes the song great. Very true. Everything about the fair should be big league, not simply locally good. I kind of like local good personally. Um, did big name composers say no to trying their hand at a World's Fair song? And he lists all these composers, like you know uh, Cole Porter and stuff, and yeah. Irving Berlin, Leonard Bernstein. And then he says, "Did anyone ask them?" Um, now I don't know if Irving or Lenny were asked. But I do know that a local guy named Johnny Weber, whose real name was Doctor Paul Volweber, did compose "Everyone Come to the Fair," and he recorded it with Jackie Souter's famous band. Mr. President, <laughs> put away your troubles for a while. We're having a fair in Seattle, and we're putting it on in style. The highways, the airways, connections are just great. So make your reservations to the Evergreen State. Let's hear the chorus. Yeah. We've got skiing and fishing, and fun for everyone. But wait until you see our fair in It was not far from the vaudeville age. I like the lyrics better of the other two. Yeah, and this is okay. This next one's my favorite one. Um, this is this is one. Um, it's it's favorite for a couple of reasons. It's only ninety seconds long. It's really pretty catchy. I think it's a bit of an earworm. Composer is Lou Bianchi, another long longtime local lounge player. There's a theme here about lounge music, right? But the guys singing are the Fordomatics, who were a force in local national barbershop singing from the 1950s to the 1970s. They were huge. Here it is. This is called Summer of 62. You'll hear it. You'll hear it in your rest of your head for the rest of the day. Can't go wrong with the banjo. We should probably sort of uh, let's dial the sound. We can talk a little bit about the big show tonight that's com- coming up. So you're going to be there. It starts at 7:30. It's in, live from the Space Needle on the Seattle Channel, but streaming at My Northwest. He's going to be there, and he was there. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For the World's Fair. Gotcha. Okay. I was there. No, I never went to the Seattle World's Fair. <laughs> you were around. I was at the New York World's Fair <laughs> in 1964, <laughs> where Picture Phone was introduced. That's but, right. Yeah. So and the Space Needle knockoff was there, too. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah. So tonight, 7.30, it's a nostalgic look back. I've got uh, three old guys who helped run the fair 60 years ago. We'll be there at the top of the needle talking about great memories, great stories, looking at old pictures and old video clips. And then our grand finale, speaking of music, 
Yes. I don't want to give too much away, but it's you and it's Lisa Brooks. Right. You're going to be singing live the greatest known folk song from the 1962 Seattle World's right. Fair. Live on TV, live from the Space right. Needle. I grew up here. I've always dreamed about hosting a live show from the Space Needle. This might be my first and probably only chance to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're going to be a part of it, and Lisa's going to be I'm there. Always Everyone happy can to, tune uh, in and watch. Always happy to indulge you. By the way, <laughs> speaking of risque music, jeez, Felix. Yeah, it's got some. It does. What have you roped me into here? There is mentions of nudity in that song. Yes, there is. is. Yeah. No so, way. But you'll have to tune in tonight, 7.30 for the big show. It's called Spirit of 62, Remembering or Celebrating the Seattle World's Fair. Live on the Seattle Channel? And live from the Space Needle and also streaming at MyNorthwest.com. Streaming live at MyNorthwest.com? Streaming all, or you can't, you'll trip over so everywhere you look online, all these streaming, there'll be pop-up crazy. ads, you can't get away from it. What everywhere. a hot ticket. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, the Seattle Metropolitans made a run for the Stanley Cup in 1919. We are still two years away from the puck dropping onto the ice for Seattle's as yet to be named NHL team, but historian Felix Spinell is here with a look back exactly one century to one of the most unusual Stanley Cup series in hockey history, which happened right here in Seattle in 1919. Yeah, it's become uh, fairly well known nowadays that the Seattle Metropolitans won the Stanley Cup back in 1917. You know, there was a big deal made for the centennial two years ago, and rightfully so. It's a truly historic moment in our community. But in 1919, the Seattle team again played for the Stanley Cup, and they made a different kind of history. So we're uh, by the IBM building, so on the corner of 5th and University, uh, where the ice arena was. A hundred years ago this week, the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals were played between the uh, Seattle Metropolitans and the uh, Montreal Canadiens, and it was called off when the Spanish flu pandemic that was sweeping the, the world hit Seattle. Spanish flu. Yeah, no, and, uh, and it's crazy. And that's Kevin Tyson. He's a former catcher for the UW baseball team, and he was with the Seattle Sports Commission. He thought somebody ought to write a book about the Seattle Metropolitan's hockey team, and that somebody turned out to be him. Um, his new book's called When It Mattered Most. It, of course, covers 1917, but it also covers 1919, when that Stanley Cup series was played here in Seattle for the second and so far final time. Um, in the spring of 1919, World War I had just ended a few months earlier. The Spanish flu had hit Seattle in the fall of 1918 and shut down the city with quarantines and curfews in place and all kinds of public events canceled well into November. So against that backdrop, Seattle won the Pacific Coast title, and the Stanley Cup Series was played here in the Ice Arena at Fifth University against Montreal, who'd won their league. The series was a bit of a seesaw. Seattle won the first game 7-zip. Montreal won the second game 4-2. Seattle won game 3-7-2. And it turns out that game 4 of the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals, played right here in little old Seattle, is regarded by many as the greatest hockey game ever played. It was a fast game. It was an athletic game. It was, uh, you know, two teams going toe-to-toe. Uh, through three full periods and two overtimes, and, and no one could get a goal across. So it wasn't a slog or an ugly game or anything like that. It was a beautifully fast, athletic game that you know they just the two goalies were the best players on the ice that day. So nobody scored. No, it was a tie after two overtimes, which is crazy. <laughs> so game four is a zero-zero tie, and it's worth noting the Canadians' goalie was George Vezina. The NHL goalie trophy is named for him. The Metropolitan's goalie was Hap Holmes. The American Hockey League goalie trophy is named for him. So it really was sort of a battle of the century. And now 1919 was a different era for hockey safety equipment, especially for goalies. Kevin Tyson says it was much more do-it-yourself and pretty rudimentary. The gloves and and knee pads and and thigh pads and things like that, they pretty much made themselves. Uh, And Hap Holmes, the goalie, you know, he's pretty cool. with with, He has white pads and and they're self-made, and he rounds them so that he can control where the puck goes as he stops it. You know, and a lot of the goalies back then have the big flat 
uh, pads, and and he doesn't have a mask on, he doesn't have a helmet on, he doesn't have anything. He wears a ball cap because fans <laughs> like to throw things out of the arena, and he's the only guy that's that's stationary, so he's trying to protect his bald head. So they could actually design their own equipment, <laughs> yes, so exactly, to, as to be able to maneuver the ball better. Yeah, you couldn't go online, you couldn't go down to the sporting goods store and buy no standard. No, totally homemade and to your advantage in, in the case of Hap Holmes. Now, and have you ever seen the Metropolitan's uniforms? No, I have not. Check them out. Their uniforms were spectacular, in my opinion. So they were red, white, and green barber pole striped jerseys with a, a red S on the chest and Seattle spelled out through the S. So just these big, beefy guys in sweaters basically beating each other up other with sticks and stuff because there was pretty much no rules against any kind of really heavy body checking. Now, in spite of those uniforms, Montreal won Game 5 in overtime. Since Game 4 had been a tie, this meant the series that was supposed to be decided in five was now tied two games to two. Also during Game 5, it became clear that the Spanish flu was back. Following the game, five Canadians players were hospitalized, and one, a guy named Joe Hall, actually died. So a sixth and deciding game, which was supposed to be played on April 1st, 1919, was canceled. The Canadians offered to forfeit the Stanley Cup to Seattle, but Kevin Tyson said that just wasn't going to fly. The Metropolitan uh, leadership and Frank Patrick, the, the president of the league, will not accept the trophy. They feel like uh, if they didn't win it on the ice, then, then they're not going to do it. The Canadians offer to bring in amateur players to fill out their roster so that the Metropolitans can win the Cup, and, and the Metropolitans, again, will not accept it, and the two leagues agreed to call it a draw. Wow, men of honor. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's 100 years ago, and it seems like a million years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the only time that ever happened, of course. A couple of great footnotes to this story. The Seattle Ice Arena was torn down in 1924 to make way for a parking garage. Uh, the Metropolitans went out of business that year. Their coach, uh, Coach Pete Muldoon, who's kind of the force behind the whole team, he died a few years later at a very young age. I don't think he lived long enough to see the new ice arena built in 1928. That's the Civic Arena that was torn down a few years ago. Mm -hmm. We had this five, four- or five-year period where there's no place to play hockey in Seattle. Um, another cool footnote, um, after the team folded, many of those players who were all from Canada, they either stayed in Seattle or they came back. They liked it here so much. We see this with our current sports teams. People, if they play here, they play somewhere yeah. else, they come back. Um, Kevin Tyson says it was almost always front-page news when those players passed away back in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, there's sort of a cool, like, kind of a, my favorite footnote to this is that Bernie Morris was a Metropolitan's player. Kevin Tyson believes he should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He was on that 1917 uh, champion Stanley Cup team, but he was wrongly jailed by the U.S. military in 1919 for draft evasion, even though he was a Canadian citizen. He eventually did a year at Alcatraz for this, too. I don't what? quite understand the legal, how that all came together. The Innocence Project needs to get involved to exonerate him about that. But yeah. wouldn't it be cool if Bertie Morris's induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame, you know, posthumously, 100 years later, if that was the way we started the NHL era in Seattle? I think that's a cool thing. And Kevin yeah. Tyson's trying to make that happen. I would love to see that happen. That'd be very cool. Um, the Mets played for the Stanley Cup one more time in 1920. They went all the way to Ottawa against the Senators, and they lost in five games. And um, we had, it's the only time, last time a Seattle team has played for the Stanley Cup. Let's hope it's sooner than another 100 years. Um, we have tons of great photos at My Northwest. Huge gallery Kevin helped us put together. So lots of great pictures about the story. Very good. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the, the idea of having a hockey rink at Fifth and University. Oh, and it's a gorgeous <laughs> building. We have pictures of that, too. It's, it was built by a Metropolitan Property Company, the university's arm. Oh, right. was, and that's why the team was called the Metropolitans, because of the university. So, and they still own that tract of land out there. They do, they? and they make millions and millions of it off every year. And still the tuition rate keeps going I higher. I don't why understand that? that. That's going to be next week's story. Yeah. <laughs> Historian Felix Spinell joined joins us each Wednesday, and you can find all his features at My Northwest. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for me. And now 
nonprofit Nevergreen Minute, a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening around the Pacific Northwest. First up, Washington Coast Savers, an alliance of partners and volunteers dedicated to keeping the state's beaches clean, has organized its next Washington Coast Cleanup for Saturday, April 23rd. More info at coastsavers.org. Next up, the Washington State Historical Society's History Awards with keynote speaker, historian, and author Timothy Egan will take place the evening of Saturday, April 30th in Tacoma. More info at WashingtonHistory.org. And finally, in May, Seattle's Civil War Legacy will be leading a free tour of Civil War veterans' graves on Memorial Day at Mount Pleasant Cemetery on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. More info at SeattleCivilWarLegacy.com. We'll have more Northwest history happenings on next week's edition of the Never Green Minute. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State. What a hot ticket.